morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is internationally best-selling author Scott Turo, who will be appearing on a panel I'm moderating at this year's Bookmarks Festival of Books and Authors on September 24th to discuss his new thriller, Suspect. Scott, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Charlie, thank you very much. Pleased to be here. So we're going to be on a panel that's being billed as a thriller panel in September at the Bookmarks Festival. So let me start by asking, what makes a book a thriller? Boy, um, you know, I, I've spent time thinking about it because initially I resisted the um, description of my books as legal thrillers. And then, you know, the years go on, even what the hell is the difference? Um, you know, obviously a thriller is a book that not only makes you want to turn the page, but turn the page uh, with a sense that um, anything can happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I've never been much of an outliner myself. I've, I've always been one of these writers who just sort of starts and, and goes. But having just written a thriller, I found I really did have to lean on the outline tool a little bit more than, than I usually do. What is, what's the process look like for you from that first idea, you know, of this might make an interesting book to getting through to that first draft? Um, it's a little unorthodox um, and it probably stems from uh, the years that I spent writing on the morning commuter train. Mm -hmm. uh, and at that point, I didn't have enough time to write to be able to, you know, follow a pre-existing plan. So I would just sit down and write um, whatever felt uh, invigorating, even inspired that day. And that's still the way I start a book. Uh, I sort of I have an idea and then I kind of prowl around inside it. Uh, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the other characters, the setting, um, you know, the nature of the central conflict, that all begins to come in sharper focus. But it's through a process of jotting notes. Um, and um, if I'm lucky every day, but it almost doesn't matter. Uh, you know, and, and I trust myself to know that that process will take place. Um, whether I'm demanding greater speed or not, yeah. uh, it's it's going to happen at its own rate. It's you know, uh, it's it's you know, there's gestational periods for elephants and human beings, and probably <laughs> books too, at least for me. So, um, <clears throat> and then after that period, which usually takes about a year, I know where I'm going, and I'll start a first draft that goes from A to Z. You know the beginning, middle, and end. You know, scene by scene, mm -hmm. and sometimes I get stuck in the middle of that, and I'll skip 
chapter seven and eight and go on to nine, knowing that I'll be able to come back then. But, you know, and it's not, it, it's not, um, it's still not a process that's as determined as, you know, what outlining would imply. Uh, there's always, you know, the character as Pinky and Suspect. Pinky was that character in the novel before the last trial. Character just shows up and demands a larger role uh, for herself than what I had anticipated. Uh, but, you know, I, I, one of the things I've noticed, Charlie, and I, you, you do a lot of this, you probably as well, is that even though m most novelists end up in the same place, um, they all have different ways of getting there. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I used to do panels with the late Sue Grafton when she was alive. And Sue could not go on to chapter two unless chapter one was perfect. And, um, you know, if I waited for chapter one to be perfect, I, I never <laughs> have written a book. <laughs> well, let's talk about this, some of the central conflicts in this, this book. There's been a lot in the news lately about uh, sexual misconduct, generally sexual misconduct by men in positions of power. Uh, tell us a little bit about this this legal case that uh, that is at the middle of of suspect, especially the beginning of the book. Yeah. Um, so Pinky has become a private investigator attached to the law firm of another relative of hers, a guy named Rick Dudek, who's kind of a low rent criminal lawyer who wants to move into high profile cases and lo and behold, he gets one. And that involves the police chief in the town where they are sitting, Highland Isle, which is sort of a gentrifying community across the river from Kendall County, my fictional locale. And uh, Rick's been asked by an old high school friend who is now the police chief to represent the chief. And the chief is charged with um, soliciting sexual favors from three officers in exchange for promotions on the police department. And the kicker, as you were averting to, is that the chief is female and the officers charging her with misconduct are all men. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, it, yeah, definitely gives it a different spin than what the reader might be um, expecting. And yet you still have that one person is in a position of higher power than the other sort of um, right. dynamic. Right. But there's a lot of the flavor of, you know, well, it would be wrong if a man did it. Um, that goes throughout the book. And I found myself at times as a legal proposition, that's almost almost always true. As a moral proposition, it's 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 less clear because of the inherent power differentials um, between, you know, males and females. Yeah. Uh, even even somebody like a police chief who unquestionably is in a position of power. You make two decisions um, at, the, at the very beginning of this book that lend, I think, a, an immediacy to the narrative. And that is, is you tell it in the present tense. Um, and you tell it in the first person, you tell it from Pinky's point of view. Why did why did you make those choices and why in particular do you want us to hear this story directly from Pinky? Well, you, you know, if I compare Pinky to other first person narrators in, you know, the, the books I've written previously, um, 
I knew, for example, that she doesn't read a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she was not going to be, uh, it would have been phony if she sounded terribly literate. So I wanted somebody whose way of expressing herself, while certainly it's thoughtful, but it's it's not lettered. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I just thought that I'd get a better chance to get into the center of pain if I was able to master that. And, you know, I wrote to my editor about this very early on and I said, okay, so Ben, here are two paragraphs. Here's the same first paragraph in the first person uh, and in the third. And, uh, and I said, I think if I can pull it off, I'm better off in the first person. And he wrote me back and he said, you know, I got the same feeling about this as you, but go ahead and try it. If it doesn't work, then the second draft will be in the third person. Yeah. You, I think you do a great job of establishing character and especially Pinky's character right off the bat. What, what do you think is the secret to sort of really having a character come alive, even after we've only been with them for a, a page or two? Boy, I wish I knew the answer to that <laughs> question. Um, you know, you're trying there. I, Charlie, always caught between two imperatives, especially at the beginning of the book. And one is the what exactly what talked about, which is to establish the character, to establish the voice, to establish the way she sees the world. Uh, and the other is the need to get the story moving. Uh, and uh, you know, in the in in suspect that turned out to be quote unquote easy because the reveal at the end of the first chapter is that the police chief who's been discussed just as the police chief turns out to be a woman. Um, But you can't get detained in the first chapter with all the details of the case. Um, And uh, so it's, you know, it's a real push and pull. And I end up writing that first chapter, especially if it's a dozen times, I don't think I'm exaggerating if I say that. Yeah, yeah. There, there are a lot of characters who could have told this story. You have the lawyer, you have the police chief, you have, um, you know, I'm not going to give away who too many of these characters are because I don't want to spoil anything. Um, but you've chosen um, Pinky, who is, you know, sort of a, a, a bisexual or queer private eye who got kicked out of the police academy and comes with, you know, more than a little bit of emotional baggage. How, how do you think the choice, yeah. the choice of who tells the story how does that affect the story itself? Well, um, you know, I started out saying I wanted to write this story from Pinky's point of view. So I didn't even think about the choices that you're presenting now, all yeah. of which are correct. I could have, this this novel could have been written from the police chief, uh, from, you know, Lucia Lucia. Gomez Barrera's point of view, it could have come for certainly the lawyer, Pinky's boss, Rick Dudek, could have come from his point of view. Uh, but, you know, I was fascinated by Pinky when she appeared in the prior novel. So I said, okay, I'm going to write a book from Pinky's point of view. To some extent, that seemed like a suicide mission because, you know, she's 33 and, you know, I'm not. And uh, she's female and I'm not. And she is, you know, bisexual and I'm not. Um, so it seemed like 
you know, a relatively steep hill to climb. Uh, and yet, in the miraculous way these things happen, happen, you know, at least the illusion that that she was speaking convincingly seemed to work. And uh, I always bear in mind with this stuff. I once did a panel with the late Robert Parker. and Somebody said, oh, you know, you do so much research. You get all the details right and everything's so convincing. And Parker looked at the woman who'd asked this question in the audience. He said, I'm just a good typist. And, uh, you know, and I, I obviously art of all kinds works with the illusion, um, you know, and uh, I remember an editor, um, friend of mine talking about uh, another author who was regarded as very erudite and the editor shook his head. He says, he, he says everything he knows is like one millimeter deep, but he manages to create uh, the impression of, you know, of, of being tremendously learned. Yeah. So, but that, that is indeed the impression that was created. So you said that, you know, Pinky came from a, from an earlier novel and what was it about her in the previous novel that made you think, oh, this is a character I want to, to spend more time with um, and, and to sort of put in, in charge of a narrative? Yeah. Well, I always know a book is going well when the character uh, who shows up, uh, who won't stay in her assigned place and essentially says, uh, I'm going to take greater control of events than you poor author ever thought of. Uh, <laughs> and I've got, uh, you know, and I've got more to say for myself. And um, and Sandy Stern, who's uh, appeared in most of my novels as a minor or major character, came about just that way. Uh, and, and, you know, lo and behold, here's Pinky. And I, I think fundamentally what, um, what, what had a grip on me was her way of accommodating herself to the fact that not only does she say um, that that she says she's strange, but she is strange. Yeah. She doesn't see and react the way people normally do, and I think that's what fascinated me to see if I could really get that on the page. And what I think is a somewhat painful struggle to come to terms with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the world of of thrillers and mysteries, you know, we associate it with these sort of iconic investigators, whether it's Mike Hammer or Hercule Poirot or, you know, whoever it might be. And and Pinky is an investigator. Um, I mean, we've talked about her her psyche a little bit and her personal life, but she is, um, you know, the reason she's in this novel is because she is an investigator. W what qualities does she bring to that, um, that job that make her both particularly suited to it, but also different from other literary sleuths that have come before her? Yeah, well, um, for one thing, um, she says to her boss early on, she says, you know, oh, you, you always say, you know, how intuitive I am. And I felt it's almost like I've got ESP. And he responds to her, says, yeah, ESP and sometimes PES. And she says, PES, what's PES? He says, piles of erroneous shit. Um, and Pinky is very, very quick with her suspicions. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And sometimes they're, they're incredibly um, intuitive and smart. And sometimes she is just on a planet of her own and has completely missed the boat. Um, and so, uh, you know, all of the fictional detectives are very good at the, you know, the, the, the blazingly correct uh, intuition. But what's different about Pinky is that, you know, as I said, that sometimes she's just laughably wrong in what she thinks is going on and the assumptions she makes about other people. And as a result, she can, you know, get badly fooled and run headlong into a wall. Yeah. One of the first things Pinky says about the case is, and I'm quoting from the book here, men still hate it when a female does what she wants with her body. Um, and it seems to me that's a statement that has more than a little relevance these days. Um, to, to what extent do you feel like you sort of incorporate um, issues of the day into your novels? Well, they've always been swimming around. On on the other hand, I always I I don't know which Hollywood executive it was who who uh, said this because it, the the statements often attributed to one or two or three different um, you know famous studio heads in the 1930s. But it is if you want to send a message, use Western Union. And <laughs> you know I don't I don't think that you know sending messages about uh, the current power dynamic um, surrounding, you know, sexual identity and, and sexual roles. Uh, I'm not trying to resolve all of that in yeah. suspect. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm exploring it. Uh, and I think it's, I think it's interesting, really interesting. Um, and, you know, Pinky is certainly what's referred to as a sex positive female. Uh, she's, you know, she's going to do whatever she wants with her body and nobody is ever going to tell her, uh, otherwise. Um, and, uh, but it's, it, you know, as I said, this is not going to replace a, a Camille Polyga essay about the same subject. It's, it's not meant to, yeah. uh, and, you know, uh, if it was simple, you wouldn't have to write a novel about it, but the novel functions on contradiction and ambiguity and a lot of these questions remain ambiguous to the end mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um obviously your own experience in the world of law uh informs your fiction in, in in a major way what what's what do you see as a relationship between um your work in that world and then your your work writing about that world well you know very often one looks back on a life and says, you know, I made a really good decision there. And I was headed for an academic career. I'd been a writing fellow at Stanford. I was then teaching there as a lecturer in the English department. And long story short, I decided that law was a lot more interesting to me than, uh, than academic English. And my interest in the law, which came as an enormous surprise to me in my mid-20s, um, found, I, I made the right call. I, I truly was fascinated by the law, always have been, still am. I got up this morning trying to figure out, um, you know, what exactly was Lindsey Graham's argument to the federal judges uh, that, to keep them from testifying in Georgia. 
you know, how far does the speech and debate clause run? I, I just, these questions have always been of enormous interest to me. The law is a limited language, and it's particularly bad with dealing with questions of affect and feeling. So you won't find a lot of legal opinions about love. Uh, that's beyond the compass of the law. So um, there's a lot that can only be explored in the law in, in the world of fiction. And so it, I both, you know, lived the law as a practitioner uh, and meditated on it as a novelist. I, I heard Dan Brown once talk about the importance of creating the villain in, in a thriller. And I, I certainly sort of had his words in mind somewhat as I was creating the villain in, in the Enigma affair. Um, how did, how do you approach that task of, of creating the villain and, and without giving too much away, what, what can you tell us about the villain and suspect? Well, um, the, the, the villain in suspect Moritz Wojciech, who is called Ritz, um, is, uh, you know, he's a little more villainous, frankly, than, than some of my other villains. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's a, as villains sometimes are a la Lex Luthor. Uh, he's brilliant. Uh, he's a former cop. He was a corrupt cop. Uh, and he's got, uh, at core, a point of view, I think, that everyone is corrupt. Uh, and that's why his own corruption is, uh, in his view, tolerable. He's, he's ahead of the game. And as uh, Lucy, the police chief, says about him, you know, he lives to feel that he is smarter than everybody else. That that is, um, that he's, he, He's as much he's a villain as much to come out on top uh, as he is, you know, evil at the core. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so as as we all know from our years of watching Law and Order, you know, there's two sides to this um, equation. There is law enforcement and there's the legal system. And you all, you, you know, you're writing in, in both of these and in the on the law enforcement side, your work shows this understanding not just of the details of how law enforcement works. I mean, you know, we can sort of look those things up, but but what the inside of law enforcement feels like, what the relationships are like and the rivalries and the partnerships and the internal politics. How did how do you get inside that world um to sort of portray the the emotion and the and the relationships of that world? Yeah. Well I, I mean it was just one of the happenstances of my practice that uh, I spent a lot of time around police officers. Mm -hmm. um, and as an AUSA, I, you know, obviously I had cops who brought cases to me to prosecute. I prosecuted cops for civil rights violations for using excessive force. Um, when I went into private practice, I was promptly appointed as a special prosecutor in, uh, in a department where there was alleged to be, and I think was sub subsequently proven to be, a good deal of, you know, corruption, cops, you know, stealing uh, stolen property. And, you know, one of the incidents at the heart of suspect, you know, grabbing the money off of a gambling table, yeah. an inventory, you know, a tenth of, of that amount. I 
sat on the state police merit board. So I was involved with hiring and firing and disciplining police officers. I represented the um, the Fraternal Order of Police Labor Council, uh, which is you know the chief negotiating arm for police police forces. So to say the least, and 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 then I had individual officers who were clients of mine. So uh, I, except for my experience as a prosecutor, where I really still wasn't on the ground, um, you know the the federal agents always hated it when you showed up for a search, for example. Um, they didn't want you there. They, your job was, you know, in court and back in the office. Yeah. So I didn't really have direct hands-on experience of being a law enforcement officer. But as a lawyer, I saw it from all sides. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think I know a lot about, still have a lot of friends who are officers. And, um, you know, and I do think I understand their world. Uh, and you know they they see their job as thankless and they're they're right they're right uh but they also have huge responsibilities that um you know they sometimes shirk so yeah. it's 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 very complicated so one of the things i found interesting about this is we have you you portray a lot of law enforcement because you know the the person who's accused of the crime is the chief of police the people who are witnessing against this person are also police officers um but Pinky's not a police officer. Pinky is outside of law enforcement. Um, what, what are the advantages from the point of view of a writer in terms of plotting and everything else of having your investigator not be uh, a police officer? Yeah, well, you know, Pinky on top of everything else is a, is a wannabe. She literally, as you mentioned earlier, Charlie, flunked out of the police academy because she blew a drug test. Yeah. Um, and uh, in, in her, in just as she was about to you know, graduate from the academy. But as one of her friends says to her, you would have been a shit cop because you know, there's a lot of things that, that police officers have to do just because that's what the rules say. And that is not Pinky's character at all. And as a matter of fact, sometimes casually, um, sometimes not so casually, she breaks the law a lot in the course of her investigative work. And she says, she lives by two rules, which is don't get caught and don't ever tell your boss what you're actually doing so that, you know, he's not responsible. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a great advantage for an investigator not to have to follow the rules all the time. Yeah. And and she certainly doesn't. Um, in one of the one of the areas in which she's not following the rules um, is it begins as sort of a side story. And again, I don't want to give too much away. But she starts to observe what she thinks is odd behavior in her next door neighbor. Um, can, tell us a little bit about that obsession and not just what she's seeing, but also how her obsession with observing the people around her sort of illuminates her character for us. Yeah, well, she, you know, she thinks she's strange and she's right. Uh, and so sometimes she has um, really unusual insights into people. She's convinced that the guy next door to her, who's eerily silent, you know, she says she, she doesn't know if he's a monk or in witness protection because he's so quiet. Um, she just feels like there's something wrong with this guy. And, you know, is he is he a terrorist trying to make a bomb over there? Uh, 
Of course, apropos of what we were just talking about, she uses electronic devices, which are illegal, to sort of eavesdrop on him uh, and learns absolutely nothing, as she says, except that he seems to have hay fever because she hears him sneezing from, <laughs> from time to time. And she, you know, she tries to follow him. She picks locks, you know, to uh, figure out what he is up to. And she's, um, and, and she, she thinks she's hot on his trail. Um, but all of this comes from her intuition that there is something, something wrong with the guy. And, um, you know, it, it would be a spoiler to say exactly how that plays out. Yeah, but in yeah. typical pinky fashion, she's right and she's wrong. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's a long time before she realizes what's actually going on. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say in typical Scott Turo fashion, it doesn't play out the way you think it's going to play out, readers. <laughs> You'll be surprised at some things that happen there. Um, now, Pinky's, we we experience not only Pinky's professional life, but her personal life. And there are ways in which her personal life and her professional life um, overlap, in particular with one of her exes. Um, talk about how how you sort of weave those two things together, the, the personal and the professional, in in having Pinky tell her story. Yeah, well, um, as I said, Pinky is a sex positive female. Um, and uh, she doesn't think much of sleeping with a lot of people. Um, you know, a lot of different sexual experiences. Um, and, you know, one of the people with whom she's dallied is now a detective uh, on the Highland Isle Police Department. and. It turns out that even though it was a dozen years ago that 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 this young woman Tanya Eo uh, is much more hung up on Pinky than Pinky ever was on her, mm -hmm. and um, and it's I, I it, it is interesting because Pinky needs her. She needs the information she can get from Tanya, uh, who can be sort of a spy for her inside the police department. But she does have a sort of ethical sense about this and that uh, she doesn't want Tanya to think that she's interested in re renewing the relationship because she's not. And uh, she sees Tanya as somebody who, whether she knows it or not, just because she's a lesbian uh, doesn't mean she's very different from anybody else. And she, you know, she wants a home uh, and, a, you know, a partner and a place where she and her partner spend hours deciding on, you know, just, just the right, uh, tchotchke to put on the, the shelves. And, uh, you know, and that's, and that's now how Pinky sees herself. And, um, and so it takes her a long time to work things out with Tanya, uh, and to sort of transform what was an intense sexual relationship into a genuine friendship and investigative partnership yeah one, one of the things we come to expect in a in a book that calls itself a legal thriller is is the courtroom scene and um you know if we've if you've watched of course you've done a lot more of this than i have but even i can remember watching parts of the oj simpson trial and we think of of these dramatic moments in that trial but that's a trial that went on for weeks and months and yeah you know there were there were hundreds of hours of non-dramatic moments in that trial. yeah um, talk yeah, about so. talk about how you go about crafting on paper a courtroom scene that both you know deals with the legal issues that need to be dealt with, but is also 
dramatic and pushes the action of the story forward? Well, um, for, first of all, this is in what most people would regard as an unpromising setting, which is to say it's an administrative hearing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the police officer in question is um, being faced with suspension for allegedly, you know, soliciting sex from these three officers who have accused her. And, um, you know, the, which means that Pinky's boss, uh, in part on the basis of information she's been able to develop, Rick is cross-examining uh, the chief's three main accusers. And uh, as I have often admitted, it is a lot easier to write uh, dramatic courtroom scenes, uh, particularly cross-examination is a lot easier when you not only get to make up the questions, but also the answers. And so, you know, the, wit the witnesses can blunder appropriately. And of course, just when we see Rick, uh, Pinky's boss as, you know, an incredible courtroom master, um, you know, he, he gets sucker punched in a huge way. Uh, and, you know, he's, he's, he's flat on the floor, you know, metaphorically speaking. So, uh, but, you know, there's, there is a lot to be developed in cross-examination genuinely. And, uh, you know, Rick, Rick's an experienced trial lawyer. He does, he does a good job of it, especially when he knows exactly where he's going. When, when you're running a courtroom scene, do you, you know, do you imagine yourself as first this lawyer and then this lawyer? How would I argue this? How would I pose this question if, if I were the one who was who was putting it forth? How, how does your own courtroom experience sort of play into that dynamic? It, it is. Um, I always say that anybody who has been a trial lawyer, uh, especially a criminal trial lawyer, has the rules of evidence onto their heart. Um, it, it really becomes like a a syntax or a second language that's always present. And, uh, and you know, it was, it, it was a sink or swim education. If you don't know how to get your evidence in as a prosecutor, you're a complete failure because you can't prove your case. So um, my sense of those rules is always uh, swimming about me as I'm writing these scenes. and. Uh, you know, I wish I was as good a lawyer as some of my uh, character lawyers have been. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, they very often they're following the, a path that I think I would at least aspire to follow. Yeah. yeah. Criminal operations, going back to the your, your villain for a minute, criminal operations these days can, can be pretty complicated. You describe um, part of this operation as, and I'm quoting here, Cayman bank accounts and Panamanian corporations and partnerships inside partnerships like Russian nesting dolls. Can you talk about the challenge and, and how you rise to that challenge of, of creating a fictional criminal enterprises and to what extent, if any, they're, they're, they're based on real ones? Yeah. Well, um, the, you know, the, one of the things people are um, loath to recognize is that criminality is one of the great uh, forms of expression of human imagination. And, um, you know, 
very often I'd sit in my office recognizing what my client was accused of. Uh, and I'd sit there and think, how in the hell did this SOB ever think of this? And, um, you know, at the, at the heart of what um, Wojciech, the Ritz, is up to is using his real estate holdings as a sort of springboard for drug operations. Yep. And, uh, and, it, and, it, and Pinky uh, compares this uh, quite tellingly to the kind of fast food operations that I used to represent, where uh, instead of having a direct interest in sales, the fast food operator gets 17% um, gets of the gross as rent. And this Wojcik is doing the same thing with the various criminal operations that are housed uh, on the properties that he owns. Yeah. So just looking at the sort of the whole legal system, uh, these, these your, your books are set in, I think it's fair to say, are set in the American legal system. Um, you, know, you know, what's your assessment of that system? How is it working for us in 2022? Well, um, well and not so well. And that's, that's always the correct answer. Um, you know, there are incredible systemic disparities between rich and poor. They've been there since I started practicing law and they're still there today. Uh, you know, somebody who became a practicing lawyer in 1986. Uh, so that's still part of it. Um, you know, I think there are tremendous triumphs for the legal system along the way. Um, you know, equalities that have been achieved in the courtroom that really couldn't be achieved every anywhere else. And I'm, I'm talking not just about, you know, civil rights or women's rights or things like that, but also like, you know, the Congress never could figure out how to bring the tobacco companies to heal. Yeah. But, but the legal system did. And it just made them pay for the damage that they've caused. And um, so, uh, you know, some good things, some bad things. Um, you know, it, it's, we, we certainly are in a moment where the legal system is being tested very sorely in, in different venues. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's not unusual. Although generally speaking, the people on the top um, kind of like the way the system operates um, because they made the rules to begin with. Yeah. So it's, it's unusual to see people on the top flouting uh, the legal system uh, in the way we are now. Um, and you know, we'll see whether or not the system itself can withstand that challenge. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners a little insight into you and into your writing. Uh, so if you're ready, we'll begin. Um, I am. What word do you love to work into your writing? Practically. Okay. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Importantly. Uh, where's your favorite place to write? Well, I've been blessed to be able to write everywhere. Um, 
but I'd still prefer, you know, the the offices that I have here in the house that I'm sitting in in southern Wisconsin and have a great office in a new house down in Naples, Florida. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm pretty comfortable writing, you know, writing on trains and planes and um so it's but I still like the office best. Yeah. Which might make the next question a little tricky, which is where could you never write? I never could write in the law office. Oh. I just it was it was a taboo that I observed. Yeah, yeah. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Huh. I'm not a great grammarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I entered high school, I was in this, you know, supposedly advanced program where I placed 108th out of 108 kids <laughs> on, on English grammar. Um, so I'm not too fastidious about it. And somebody like Pinky, you know, violates all of those rules, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the, you know, the me and him stuff that was strictly frowned upon when I was, when I was younger. So, yeah. um, you know, them, uh, you know, the trying to avoid saying he and him, um, these days, uh, because I do accept the argument that there's an inherent bias being revealed by that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm big on using the plurals, them and they. Mm-hmm. What's the first book you remember reading? I remember my mom reading Black Beauty to me mm, yeah. and uh, just being my, my sister was there, too. And just totally we we're both transported by it. Yeah. What are you reading now? Uh, I am reading a novel uh, that won the Booker Prize a couple of years ago called Shuggy Bane. Mm-hmm. And it's a tough read. It's a it's about a bleak world, but it's beautifully done. Yeah. So what book would you like to have written? <laughs> uh, probably The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene. Yeah. I think that's just the height of literature and suspense. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Hmm. Well, I don't, I'm not sure I'm going to put this in the never will category, but I sure haven't gotten around to doing it. Norman Mailer wrote a lot of what uh, might be called commonplace books, where he um, sewed together uh, essays that he'd written earlier in his life with uh, little autobiographical pieces to explain how he wrote that where he was in his life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I keep swearing that I'm going to do it, and I sure haven't done it so far. Yeah. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Oh, I stayed up all night. <laughs> this has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Scott Turo, whose novel Suspect will be published on September 20th. Scott, thanks for joining us. Charlie, thanks, and I look forward to seeing you in North Carolina. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. 
Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking with middle grade writer Frank Morelli about my new middle grade book, The Book of the Seven Spells. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Thank you.